page 8, Biblical Worldview 101. But uh, let me just remind you of some things that are coming up. And uh, we are down to the home stretch for sure in trying to move into our ministry center two weeks from today. But as I mentioned in the first hour, there are a number of things that need to be done. A lot of them are cosmetic things, which would not, if they were unfinished, would not keep us from moving in. But then there are a few things that the city is going to want to see in order to grant our occupancy permit. One of those is related to delivery of some some doors. And not even all of those doors would have to be in. Some of them are interior doors in rooms. We want them all, but some of them wouldn't have to be there for code purposes. But there are a few that, that would. So just keep praying about that, praying that the stuff that's supposed to be delivered comes when it's supposed to and gets installed. And if all that happens, the schedule that is on paper will get us there two weeks from today. Okay? If there's a snag on that this week, then we'll let you know. Uh, but hopefully not. Next week during our first hour, things may be arranged a little bit differently in here for our final service, hopefully our final service, because one of these screens needs to be taken and installed over at the new place. So we'll have one screen. It'll be moved toward the middle. We'll have to try to move you all toward the middle a little bit so everybody can see that. So some minor inconveniences next week. But our hope is that we are confident that uh, we can move things out of here uh, in the following week, week after this one, and then move them over there. Uh, not everybody is aware of how much stuff we have here, but we do on a weekly basis keep a decent amount of stuff. Right around the corner here are a couple of cabinets that we keep locked up there. It's got some of our stuff in it, but also on the premises here for years, we have had a pod, you know, a container, and it's out that way, and they let us keep it here, and uh, we pay to rent that, and we put a bunch of stuff in there that our guys come early and faithfully empty out and bring in to set everything up. So we need to know that we're good to go so that we can take all that stuff and put it over to new place. So uh, next week will be busy, and the week after that will be even more busy trying to slide into home and get it done. But, uh, you know, I think it will. And uh, if it doesn't, then we are going to do a Jonah routine and pick straws to uh, find out who didn't pray, and we will throw you overboard, okay? <laughs> you know, we're going to identify the culprit who was not praying. We've got uh, our midweek program that will start uh, two weeks from Wednesday, two weeks from Wednesday at the ministry center, assuming all goes well. So it'll start uh, up again uh, February 6th. But we have already started uh, with midweek our men's meetings, our men's fraternity meetings. So those started three weeks in advance of the full midweek program. And the reason is this installment of men's fraternity is 16 weeks. In order to get those 16 weeks in such that everything ends at the same time in the 1st of May, we had to start this three weeks earlier. So guys, if you have been part of men's fraternity in the past and forgot that it started this week, it did. Those of you that have not been, I encourage you to be. And we've tried to make it as convenient as possible by offering the men's meetings twice in the week. Same meeting, offered twice. Wednesday night at 7 o'clock, these next two Wednesdays at Patrick Henry Middle School, and then those Wednesday meetings will go to the ministry center after that. And then on Friday mornings at 6 a.m. in Allen Park at the Allen Park Community Center. So you can choose either of those. And if you say, I'm, I'm going to be a Wednesday night guy, but for some reason you can't make Wednesday, you've still got Friday morning 
to uh, make it to because it is the same session, okay? We've only had one so far, so you haven't missed much. We've got 15 to go, so this would be a good time for you to jump in. You just need to show up this Wednesday at 7 at Patrick Henry or Friday morning at 6 a.m. at the uh, Allen Park Community Center. All right, we're in this series, uh, title of which is on the screen behind me, Biblical Worldview 101. And what we're attempting to do in these notes is to show that in order to look at all of life from God's perspective, we need to have a solid handle on three major categories of, of issues, three major categories. I mean, when you say we want to look at all of life the way God looks at it, well, that's a tall order, to put it mildly. So to break that down into a somewhat manageable way, we've broken it down into these three categories. And we say at the top of page 8 that uh, the, the first of those is what I call orientation. A biblical view of the world starts with God as the creator and God then orienting his creatures to himself and his world and themselves. And so that's why we call it orientation. God creates. God creates the man and the woman. God speaks to the man and the woman They are able to speak to God because he made them with that capacity. And God tells them who he is, who they are, why they are here. That's what we mean by orientation. And we saw in the first few lessons uh, the implications of the fact that God is the creator and that God is the one who orients us to his world. Things like this is God's world, he owns it. That God has full authority. That we are dependent upon God if we are to know ourselves and if we're to know what life is about because he's the one who made it, therefore he must tell us. So in your notes, for those of you that haven't been able to be here with us for these first few weeks, if you go back to pages 1 through 7, you'll find that. Orientation, God creating, and the implications of that. And then on page 8, we transition to a second section. You see at the top it says section 2, disorientation. And disorientation is what happened when sin entered God's otherwise good world. So when the man and the woman sinned now, things become distorted. What was clear is now foggy. What God had told them now plainly and was understood plainly is now not so clear and plain. And so their relationship with him and their relationship with each other and their relationship with the physical world around them. All of that is radically altered so that what they had as an orientation to God's world is now disoriented and distorted. And so the lenses through which they saw each other and God and the world, the lenses are now cracked. They're they're foggy. They don't work right. They can still see, but they see it wrong. And they still participate, and they still get up every morning, and they still go through life's activities, but, but it's all wrong. And that's what sin has done to God's world. And that's what we mean by then disorientation. Thankfully, God doesn't leave it there. If God leaves the story of humanity at disorientation, then it's hopeless indeed. But we will see in section 3 that there's a third category, and that's reorientation. That's God's redemption. That is God making right what has gone wrong by the entrance of sin. And that's centered on Jesus. 
and Jesus is repairing what's broken. Jesus is repairing the broken lenses so that we start to see clearly. So that we see clearly and so that we are seen clearly by God. Now here's what I mean by that. We both have spectacles with which we see and we are mirrors that God looks into. We were made in His image and sin cracks not only the lenses of our spectacles, but it cracks the mirrors that we were made to be. And so God is repairing both of those, the way we see outwardly and the way God sees us so that we are conformed to the image of Jesus so that he no longer sees now these cracked mirrors, he sees Jesus. That's what we were made to be like, and that's what he is remaking us to be like. Orientation, disorientation, and reorientation. And we're looking at disorientation. And we've been looking at disorientation for a few weeks. And the truth is, <laughs> you could just spend weeks and weeks and months talking about sin and all of its implications, couldn't you? Because it's the world we live in. That's life in a fallen world. And so we've been exploring that. We'll explore it some more today. But if you are interested, there's a very good book on the subject of sin. Uh, it, is, uh, it is called this, Not the Way It's Supposed to Be. That's the name of the book. Not the Way It's Supposed to Be. And the author's name is Plantinga, Plant, P-L-A-N-T-I-N-G-A, Plantinga. And uh, I think his first name is Cornelius, but Plantinga, not the way it's supposed to be. And here's the cool thing about it. It's a theology book that you can actually read. It's a theology book that was written for people who don't want to wade overly deep and technical, but it's very accurate. So not the way it's supposed to be. And we live in a world that's not the way it's supposed to be. It's messed up. The subtitle of that book is A Breviary of Sin. It's a summary of sin. And I was reading that one time, and I was, as I was reading it, I'm going, it, I don't know why it occurred to me as I was reading the book, but every book I have is dedicated to somebody. A lot of times the author will dedicate it to his, spou his or her spouse. And it hits me, this guy's written a book on sin. Who do you dedicate a book? If he dedicates it to his spouse, I'd like to see that. So I, so I turn to the front, and he has this guy. He mentions this guy. This book is dedicated to. And then he says, friend, raconteur, and something else. And then he says, who has taught me more about the subject of this book than I can properly tell. That's what he says. So he's got a friend who he hung out with where he learned everything he needed to know about sin and more. Not the way it's supposed to be. Disoriented. Page 8. And we've seen that the entrance of sin then had three effects. Most important was the vertical effect. And we have that on page 8 for you. And that is an effect upon the relationship between the creature and the creator. And that is most important, and that is foundational, and everything else flows from that. Because that is broken, everything else is broken. So when you see stuff messed up in our world, 
Your thoughts from a biblical worldview standpoint ought to always go back to it's messed up because our relationship with God is messed up. It is always, ultimately, a God thing. Now, we tend to forget that. Everybody here, I would hazard to guess, is a theist. That is, you believe in God. But practically, we act like atheists. We act like atheists. No God. Because we forget that God's the principal player all the time. In everything. In every thought you have, in every relationship you pursue, in every word you say, in every act you perform, you are always, at all times, in every situation, transacting before the face of God. In Latin, coram Deo. In the presence of God, before the face of God. And that's the way life is lived out. And because that's messed up, then in turn, as a consequence of that, everything else gets messed up. And so we've looked at the vertical effect and the fact that the man and the woman who were made for intimate relationship with God, and they enjoyed that until the entrance of sin. Now you read these very sad words that we have in the middle of page 8. The man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. They hid from the Lord God extremely crucial, sad, awful words. They're hiding from God. And people continue to hide from God. And then Adam tries to trick God, and everything gets wigged out, as we saw last week, because sin, as I said profoundly last week, sin is stupid. And it makes smart people stupid. You guys remember that last week? And it makes Adam stupid because Adam is trying to deceive God. And he, sa- he lies to God. He uses the communication skill that God gave him to receive God's messages and for him to speak with on a horizontal plane, but also to return communication to God. God gave him this ability, and here he is using it to lie. And he says, I hid because I was naked. And yet he had already made fig leaves for himself. He's not naked. And he's stupid enough to think he can get by. And God won't know. So sin has this vertical effect. And then in turn, that has the horizontal effect. Foundationally, it's our relationship with God. But that in turn affects our relationship with each other. And so in the middle of page 8, God says, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree I commanded you not to eat from? Of course, God already knows the answer to this. The man said, the woman you put... And let me just stop here. My mother, whose birthday would have been today. But my dear mother could have been doing this in the garden. She would pull this trick on me all the time. Before I leave to go play baseball at the Sandlot... And don't hop any fences on the way there. I don't want you cutting through people's yards. Don't hop. Okay, Mom. And then, you know, after we played and we're tired, probably gotten crushed, <laughs> so I'm mad. And it's going to be a long walk or bike ride home or whatever, so I'm going to take and throw my bike over somebody's fence, and I'm going to take a shortcut. And I take the shortcut, and when I walk in the door, my dear mother, my omniscient mother, would say, 
Did you cut through somebody's yard? Did you hop somebody's fence? And I would go, sometimes, well, initially I would say no. (laughs) Until I discovered she's omniscient. She knows everything. And so then, you know, even though sin is stupid, and even though I'm stupid by nature, finally I caught on and said, you can't get anything by your omniscient mother, so tell her the truth the first time. And so I would. And then years later, I asked my mom, how did you know all of this? And it turns out there was a whole network of omniscient mothers throughout the... (laughs) that would call each other on the phone and say, you know, Kenny is hopping a fence again. But God didn't need my omniscient mother or any other omniscient mother. He just knows. And did you eat from the tree? And then Adam says... The blame shifting. It's the woman you put me here with. We saw that last week. She gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Now, remember who was supposed to be in charge of this whole arrangement. Who was supposed to be heading up his household? It's Adam. But here's Adam blaming the wife for what transpired. And have you all ever thought about why it is that even though Eve was a central player in this thing, I mean, she's the one having the dialogue with the serpent, why is it that for time immemorial, we and the Bible refers to this as Adam's sin? I mean, why Adam's sin? She's the one talking to the serpent. Here's why. Because that first sin was Adam's in failing to carry out the instructions that God had given him. And he abdicated his leadership that he was given in Genesis chapter 2. And in verse number 6 of Genesis 3, Genesis 3, 6, the Bible says the woman took and gave some to her husband, and here's the next phrase, who was with her. So even though from Genesis chapter 3 and verse 1 all the way down to verse 6, the dialogue is the serpent said to the woman and the woman said to the serpent, and you're wondering, where's Adam in all this? He's watching this whole thing. He is watching humanity be plunged into sin and now their posterity, us, born into sin. He's watching all this go down and he's silent through this whole thing. So that's why you've heard me say in the past, people often you know, say, you know, when I get to heaven, here's the first person I want to talk to. You know, I want to talk to Paul, Moses, Jesus. And then I say, I'd like to have a word with Adam. <laughs> I say, uh, Adam, a few of us would like to speak with you. A few billion of us would like to speak with you in the celestial alley. Just one chance to work this guy over, just to pay him back. So he's there, he's abdicated, Adam's sin, she's an active participant, and he's blaming her. And then God says to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman says, the serpent. And indirectly, they are both blaming God. Because when Adam says the woman... I know who made the woman. You did, God. I was there. I remember when I awakened, and you presented her to me. This was your gift to me. You made the woman, and the woman has done this. So not only is the woman to blame, ultimately you're to blame because you made the woman. 
So then he turns, God turns to the woman, and the first words out of the woman's mouth is, the serpent. Well, who made the serpent? So both of them are indirectly blaming God because of this. And so you see how horribly sad this scenario is now. God made them, oriented them, God made them for himself, for fellowship, made them in his image. And now in, in, in one act, this is what has happened. They are hiding from God, separated from God, and now they are blaming each other and blaming God. And so from this day forward, we say, at the end of point B, blame shifting to others, including God, became natural. You notice I have that natural because I'm trying to show that now this is the natural bent of humanity now. This is what people come into the world ready to do. They come into the world ready to blame someone else. And so when you do that, when I do that, when you hear other people do that, when you read sophisticated theories of why people behave the way they behave, but what they amount to is blaming someone or something else, when you see that, you think garden. Because that's where the blame shifting started. Vertical effect, horizontal effect, but also environmental effect. To the woman, he said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Now let me stop there. So God is going to is, is meeting out now consequences to the various players for the sin. And as he does so, he, he says to the woman, pain in childbearing, and your desire will be for your husband, but he will rule over you. So what is that? What does it mean? Because when you read your desire will be for your husband, that doesn't sound like a punishment. So here's God giving a consequence for sin that sounds like a good consequence. So you would normally think that it would be a good thing for a woman to desire her husband. So how's that a punishment? Here's how. He says your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. And in the next chapter chapter 4 and verse 7. There you have, you see played out really quickly, the effects now of this sin for their progeny. Cain and Abel, their, their sons. And Cain murders, the first murder, Cain murders Abel. And the Bible records that in the very next chapter in order for us to see very clearly how heinous sin is and the far-reaching consequences of that sin. And now it goes to, to murder. And we saw in our first hour today how far murder has, has gone, right? So Cain kills Abel. God then comes and smokes Cain out the same way he did Adam and Eve. Cain, what, did, what have you done? Where are you? Why are you downcast? All of that. Asking him these questions that God already knows the answer to. And, you know, Cain tries evasion like his dad did. Am I my brother's keeper? Remember? How am I supposed to know where he is? And then God says to Cain, Cain, the, the, the blood of the, from the ground cries out against you. And he says to Cain in verse 7, chapter 4 and verse 7, Sin, Cain, is crouching 
at the door. And it desires to have you, to master you. Now, in Hebrew, that's exactly the same phrase as in chapter 3 and verse 16. It's saying that sin desires to control you. And then God says to Cain, but you must master it. And what he is saying to the woman here is, you will desire to control your husband and he will respond sinfully by dominating you. Just like sin seeks to control Cain, but you must master it. You will seek to control your husband and he will, in sin, seek to rule over you. Now, in human history, we see that played out over and over and over again. I talked about in the first hour, radical feminism. You know, this idea that God designed males to lead their homes. God designed males to lead the church. The Bible clearly teaches all of this, but this does not sit well with the modern agenda, right? And it goes back to a natural bent to desire to control, and then men sinfully seek to dominate their wives. So this is an ill consequence, as all of these are, of sin entering God's good world. So that's to the woman. And then to Adam, he said, because you listen to your wife. Now, <laughs> men just like to put a period there. You know, My mistakes are always when I listen to my wife. But God doesn't put a period there. He says, because you listen to your wife eating from the tree. I had put you in charge. You abdicated that. Because you've done that, and thus sinned, now here's what's going to happen. Because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. I'll produce thorns and thistles for you. And you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground since from it you were taken. For dust you are made, and dust you will return. So now, what's the consequence for Adam? Well, the consequence is now you're going to have to work for a living. And that's actually not it. It's not that you're going to have to work, because do you all remember Adam had told him to, God had told Adam to work even before the entrance of sin? When God gave the orientation, he says, be fruitful and multiply. And he says to subdue the earth. And God placed them in the garden for them to care for it. They were made to work. The curse is not work. I've heard people say that, well, you know, work is a curse. Work is not a curse. Work was part of the original creation. It's not work that's the curse. It is the difficulty of that work now. The difficulty of that work will be amplified because... There's an environmental curse. And Adam is now going to have to deal with that environmental curse in his, in his work. So the environment is cursed. And as a result of this, you see down at the bottom of page 8, sickness, disease, death, battle of the sexes all become natural. 
Now, the sickness, the disease, all of that, these are all consequences of the environmental curse. And I'd like to take a bit to talk about the implications of that, that there's a curse on the physical world as a result of sin. So we come into the world with separation from God, the vertical effect, with hostility toward one another. We aren't born with a natural affection and love toward all humanity like we were made to do. And even within our own families and and our spouses, there's this battle of the sexes that goes on. But then there's also outwardly in the physical creation there is now a curse. Things ain't right. They're not right. They're messed up. Sickness, disease, death. You remember that God said to Adam, Of all the trees in the garden, you may freely eat. But of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, you may not eat. For in the day you eat of it, what will happen? You will surely die. You've heard me say in the past that death in the Bible, when you read death, read separation. And so spiritual death is separation from God. And that's what happened to them that day. They were separated from God. They're hiding from God. The vertical effect. Physical death is the separation of the spirit from the body. And then eternal death. The Bible speaks of three kinds of death. Eternal death is separation of the individual from God forever. So you've got physical death, you've got spiritual death, and Adam is going to now eventually die physically. On that day, he died spiritually. And all of his children are going to to die physically as well spirit separated from from the body and so you've got death and all the stuff that leads up to that the sickness and the disease and all of it comes from sin now what are the implications of that if somebody struggles with a sickness and you ask the question is this sickness because of sin the general ultimate answer to that is always yes. Because there would never be any sickness for anybody if it wasn't for sin, right? So people contract cancer because of sin. But then the question is, and that's usually what is meant by that question, did this happen to me or did this happen to so-and-so because of sin? What we usually mean is not... Is this the consequence of sin in general, but is this the consequence of sin in particular that they have committed? And the answer to that may be yes and maybe no. If I've smoked my whole life and I've abused my body and I get lung cancer, then there's a direct connection between the disease I have and stuff I've done, right? If I drink alcohol my whole life, and I get cirrhosis of the liver, then there's a direct connection between what I have and what I've done. But if I get any of the zillion varieties of cancer, and we have no earthly idea why, that I contracted this or a child contracted this, then the answer is yes, this occurred because of sin in general, but there's no evidence that this happened because of a sin this person committed in particular. 
So it may be yes, it may be no. Now, why do we care, why do we care about that? Well, one, when people are stricken with sickness, often that's a question they ask. Why is this happening? What did I do wrong? You remember Job. Job was afflicted. Job was afflicted with all kinds of disease and sickness, and his, his friends come and say, Job, we've got to do some Freudian analysis on you. And that's what they do. They, they say, we've got to go back. There's got to be something. You've got a woman on the side. You've got something going on here. And we just need to figure out what it is because... In their theology, there's a direct cause and effect. The effect is you've got this bad stuff going on, so there's a direct cause. We just don't know what it is yet. Let's talk for days and days, and finally, you're going to come clean before God. And you read through these chapters of Job, and that's what you got. And Job's crying out and saying, Lord, I don't, I don't know, and these friends of mine, <laughs> and they keep doing this, and they're saying, you know, the friends are like, you think you know a guy. And yet he's got all of this, this going on. And we just got to figure out what it is. Their theology was similar to the disciples in John 9 that I mentioned in our first hour today. Man who was born blind, they say to Jesus, who sinned that this occurred? Now notice the assumption is, is somebody sinned. There's a direct cause and effect. It's just a matter of who. So... You may experience this. You may be diagnosed with something, and then the first thing you say is, what did I do? Or someone may ask you, what is it I did? And the answer is, all sickness is because of sin. And some sickness is directly the result of sin we commit. But most of it is simply life in a fallen world. And the environmental effect of disease and the passing of disease and the, and the, uh, and the abnormalities that occur in DNA structure. So biologically, you can, you can see what's happened, but it all starts with our first parents and a curse upon the environment. Now, let me get a little... Let me get a little... Uh, more applicable, I hope. You've got the fact that sickness and disease comes from this environmental curse that God placed on the world. So we live in the fallen world, and it carries with it all the personal sin we commit, but now our environment is cursed by sin as well. And so there is upheaval in the physical earth. There are earthquakes and volcanoes, and there's just all manner of mishap now because the environment is cursed. And includes all this bad stuff that happens. But add to that now. That the, the man and the woman, humanity, were made with these two components. They were made with a material component and they were made with an immaterial component. They were made with a physical body and they were made with a spiritual soul, spirit. So they are both body and spirit in one person. You all remember that from Genesis 2 and verse 7. And God breathed into Adam the breath of life, and he became a living soul. 
So here's Adam. He's a body. God breathes into him the breath of life so that that body is animated with a spiritual component now. And so every person is both physical and spiritual. There's an environmental effect that causes disease and sickness and DNA to be messed up. Genetics passed on from you know, one generation to another. How do you put that all together then with something like this? Depression. So if somebody asks you, is depression sin? So what, what are you going to say to that? Well, doing our theology thing now, there would be no depression if it weren't ultimately for sin, right? But now you're, you're tempted to, as to whether or not you're going to become one of Job's friends, whether you're going to become one of the disciples in John 9, and say, not only is depression in general because of sin in general, not only that, but your depression is because of your sin in particular. And on that, you ought to step back and be a little more careful. So you can say, nobody would be depressed if it weren't for sin in general. But now what about this person in particular? Body, spirit. And so let's unpack that for the next 90 seconds. But unpacking it starts with these truths, environmental effect and also the fact that we are two components, physical and spiritual, material and immaterial. So it is a biblical fact that anxiety and worry are sin. Those are spiritual things that the Bible identifies as our active spirit processing life in a way that is contrary to a biblical worldview. So I have anxiety and I worry when I look at life through the distorted lenses of my sin. And I say I, let me give you an example. It is very easy for me to fall into anxiety about stuff that's going on in life in general, and for me, it was stuff in the church. We've got two weeks to move into a ministry center. So it's all good. And now I'm going to get struck by that lightning that was intended for you, Bonnie, <laughs> earlier. No, but I've, for months now, I have to battle the temptation to not worry about that. As we get closer to that date, and I stand up and I say to you all, okay, two more weeks. I go. <laughs> right? And I know you all would be forgiving and kind. <laughs> I have reason to worry, don't I? But you see how easy it would be to have anxiety, to worry about that. And I would be lying to say that I'm not tempted to that. I've had to battle that for weeks and months. Now, if I succumb to that, I have sinned. Do not worry, says Jesus. 
That's not a biblical worldview for me to do that. What I need to do, what we need to do is the best we can before God and then let him deal with the results. That, I know that, but I don't always process that, and neither do you. All right, so that, that's sin. But then consider that there's this spiritual component, but the spirit operates on the brain in terms of how we think. This is why, and you might write this down, in Scripture, your brain is not the same as your mind. The brain and the mind are not equivalent. The mind is more than the brain. The brain is the physical material component. The spirit is the immaterial component, and the two of those together are your mind. That's why the Bible says in Romans chapter 8 and verse 9, the carnal sinful mind is hostile toward God. See, it's not the, the carnal sinful brain. The brain is physical material. But that gray matter material interacts with our spirit in terms of our thoughts. So, think about this for next week. Can the gray matter just go haywire? Can the physical organ that we call the brain, can it be messed up? Can it just be physically messed up so that it doesn't work right? And if that's the case, that will help us then to determine for ourselves and perhaps for others. What's going on here now? As I process thoughts and I'm tempted toward anxiety and, and worry, that's a spiritual issue. But at the same time, I've got this gray matter, and this gray matter is a physical thing. And I've got other physical components to my body that are just messed up because of life in a fallen world. So how do those relate? You guys want me to answer that? I will. Next week, on our last Sunday, in this building, I will seek to answer that question. And he said confidently, and Matt is going like this. All right. So let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this Lord's Day and the blessings of being with each other and encouraging and being encouraged. Thank you that you've given us your word that we can look into to guide us, Lord, in a fallen world. We need the light and the lamp that is your word. Lord, uh, we pray that you will go with us this week. And as we try to process what we've talked about, even in this hour, and about our thoughts and about how we encounter the things that you allow to come our way and how I am tempted toward worry and anxiety outside of a view of the world that is yours. And, and help me, help us to resist that temptation. Help us as well to think well. Help us to think biblically about ourselves, about those you've called us to minister to, and about those that, Lord, we hope we're going to be able to minister to in this new location, people we haven't even met yet. We want to think your thoughts after you and communicate those lovingly and clearly to those you bring our way. Help us to do that this week, and we ask you to bring us back safely next Lord's Day. In the name of Jesus, amen.